I'm a bit nervous this morning. Just going to also lead with that. And I'm a bit nervous because I have no idea where this is going to land. And part of the reason for that is that it depends on you. Um, and I'm believing that God's got something for each and every person here today, that no one will be left behind. Everyone is included. And so my prayer is that you would lean in. I am going to be continuing our, our series in Mark, and uh, the passage that I'm reading is Mark 6, 1 to 6, and I'm going to read that. Um, keep in mind Pastor Nate's message from last week, as you would remember, that was an amazing day of ministry for Jesus. It was incredibly public, and he did two amazing miracles, healing the woman um, with a long-term chronic illness that was debilitating for her physically and socially, and healing Jairus, or resurrecting Jairus' daughter. Um, and that was public. There was no hiding. Everybody saw it. And so then we move to this passage, and it goes like this. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. The famous part of this passage is the quote that Jesus quotes. And it will probably be the title of the passage, A Prophet Without Honour. Um, the title of my message is, How Do You Respond to Jesus? Or otherwise, um, you could also write, Don't Let the Sins of Familiarity Blind You to Who Jesus Really Is. Sometimes when we read the Bible, there is a direct message. And oftentimes in scripture, there is an indirect message so that the one passage can have a main message and a secondary message. And then at other times, there can be what, what I would call the inferred message. It's where you would take the principle, the underlying general principle behind either the main or the second message, and you extend that to an area, not in view in that passage, but which might be tolerated or acceptable by scripture. I'm going to start there, of all things, which isn't very good um, hermeneutics, but I think it will lay some background work for us. And I believe the inferred message is how familiarity um, affects how we respond to the things and people in our world. Um, recently, several weeks ago, I was preparing to cook a meal and um, I was cooking the onions, and I had a large onion, and I chopped it in half. I chopped, 
actually I chopped the ends off first, chopped it in half, peeled off the outer layer, and then I was left with two half spears. And so, and then I started to chop slices. And so you could imagine I'm, I'm chopping, I'm starting close to the chopping board and I chop and my fingers and the knife is getting higher and higher as it gets to the top of the sphere. At that point, what I should have done was to turn it around and do the same again. But instead, I just kept going. And that was my fatal error because my fingers were lower than where the blade was contacting the onion. And on one of those slices, the blade slipped, went straight into my middle finger nail at the top, sliced a third across, and then ripped it off so that a third of my nail was gone, along with part of the nail bed, and it hurt a lot. And it bled a lot. And in the following days, um, I, like I had to like wrap it up and, and treat it. And, and in the following days, there wasn't much I could do with that finger. And I lost, I couldn't use like a lot of my grip strength. I couldn't type on the keyboard at work. Um, it impacted my life. And I'll tell you what, there is a phrase that, that we all know, which is um, you often don't appreciate things until it's gone. Well, I appreciated a one-third of a fingernail that week because when it was gone, it was horrible. There is another phrase that is um, almost related, which is you can take the familiar for granted. So firstly, you can not appreciate the familiar. Secondly, you can take it for granted. You can assume that just because you have it, you're always going to have it. And there's a problem with that too. And it's amazing how much we take for granted. We take our things for granted. We take our health for granted. We take our abilities for granted. We take time for granted. We take living in a peaceful country for granted. We take the people in our worlds for granted. And it's often um, the case that it's the person who receives something for the first time that sees it for what it truly is. Time has not placed a lens or a filter over their eyes, and they are so appreciative. When Nicola and I um, were fortunate enough to move out of the rental market in Sydney and move into a tiny little townhouse, we thought we had won the lottery. We loved that place. It was great, but then time happens, and all of a sudden it was, oh, it's a bit small, oh, we don't have the, oh, we... and then we moved to Newcastle, and we got to move into a bigger house, and we thought that we had won the lottery again. We're like, this is like a resort, this is like a hotel. We love this place. Um, but then time happens, yeah? There's something about, about it. The first time you experience something, you can't take it for granted because what is for granted for you is life without that thing. It can be the same in relationships too. The first time you meet that person, you appreciate everything about them and you don't take them for granted. There is another thing that we can do. Um, I don't have a, a common quote here, but another thing that we can do, which is we can overlook the familiar voice. 
So we cannot appreciate the familiar, we can take the familiar for granted and we can overlook the familiar voice. Um, and this happens in relationships where uh, you might be going through a hard time or you might be going through something and you, um, you're looking for advice and the people in closest to you say something and oftentimes it can go in one ear and out the other. And then you go and seek advice from someone outside of the home and all of a sudden it's like the wisdom, the wisdom, even though they might be saying the exact same thing your spouse has been saying all along. Well, we all know that this happens when um, people become teenagers and it's like the familiar voice of the parent is, is, uh, not, uh, is, is, can be very overlooked. This is why we need youth pastors. Uh, they can say the exact same thing we do, but they'll be listened to. It's good. So it's easy to overlook uh, the familiar voice when the familiar voice might be communicating unfamiliar wisdom unfamiliar direction, unfamiliar encouragement, and unfamiliar truth. We don't want to do that. Uh, the fourth thing, and you would know this phrase as well, which is familiarity breeds contempt. This is different. The first three ways of, not, of responding poorly to the familiar are really sins of omission. That's what you're not doing. It's how you're not responding to it. But this one is a kind of response. It's a negative response. And this can happen in relationships, and it's really sad that this can happen in relationships where over the passage of time, familiarity can bring increased feelings of dissatisfaction, resentment, and then even contempt. Why does this happen? Um, I don't know why it happens. Um, but the familiar become the, can become the object of offence. Maybe it's because of bitterness. Maybe it's because of um, un, unmet expectations. Maybe it's because um, life isn't going well for you on the inside and you need someone to project some blame onto you. I don't know. I don't know why it happens. But the familiar can become the object of offence. And this is what happened when, happens when sin creeps in, left untended and unchecked, and it can create a wedge that over time can become quite significant and big. And here's the thing, the, the problem is not actually the familiar, because in other contexts, the familiar in a relationship can lead to deepening love and appreciation and intimacy. It's not that it's familiar, it's the sins that can be present in the familiar. So let's come back to this passage. Um, Jesus has had a whirlwind tour. So Jesus grew up in this hometown. Everyone knew him. He was a carpenter, which meant he probably went around to people's houses fixing things or creating furniture for them or things like that. And he didn't leave town until he was approximately 30. So he'd already spent a large portion of his career in that town, and so he leaves town. And this happens in our lives, you know, people are part of our community and, and for whatever reason they might, have, they might leave and go get a job or whatever. Jesus left and all of a sudden they start hearing rumors about this guy. He's going around doing amazing things. He's going around speaking um, amazing truths and pe crowds are following him and then they start to hear the rumors like Jesus is performing some amazing miracles and these are things that had not been seen in their time. And so you could imagine the buzz of what's going on in his hometown 
as they're hearing about the person they knew. And so Jesus comes back, and you could imagine the expectation on them when Jesus comes back to his hometown. Um, And the first public thing that he does is he waits till synagogue and he gets up and he speaks when everyone is gathered together. Now, we don't know what Jesus spoke about, but I think we can um, assume to some degree that he would have been speaking about the kingdom of God. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says this. Later on, after John was arrested, this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. And what is that good news? Quote, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And scholars would tell us, like there's lots of debate about different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry, but there is universal consensus pretty much that this was Jesus' main preaching topic, the kingdom of God. And Stanley Gren says the kingdom of God is the reign of God and uh, it's that order of righteousness, peace and justice that God brings when God sets up his reign. When God's reign, his saving reign encounters a place, it does stuff to that place. It brings that place into alignment with God's will, God's authority and what God has for it. So you could imagine that perhaps Jesus got up and he started preaching about the kingdom of God. He starts preaching about at long last. You've been waiting for so long. God is going to do something in your midst. God is already doing something. God, this is the time where God brings his saving reign. And so Jesus starts to paint this picture of what that might look like and they start to get amazed. Wow, where did he get all this from? they start to get amazed. And he starts to, he doesn't sell it short. He paints the picture as God sees it. And it's amazing. But the greater and greater that vision of the kingdom of God gets, the bigger the gap is between where we are and what God is trying to do. And this is the downside of his preaching because he also had to call them to repentance. The bigger that gap got, the more it was the case that we weren't good enough for that reign. And here's the other thing. So there's the kingdom of God and there's the repentance, right? Repent and believe. The good news. The good news is that you can repent and believe. That's the good news, but it comes as judgment. Your ways aren't good enough. Um, And here's the other thing about Jesus' preaching. When he talked about what God was doing, he talked in such a way that he was at the center of what God was doing. He was in the center of it. So you could imagine he comes back to his hometown comes back to his hometown. Now, sometimes when we read scripture, we, um, we, we see ourselves in scripture. And so the question is, who do you identify in this story? Are you the disciples standing next to Jesus, being like, yeah, Jesus, you tell them? Um, are you like the hometown people starting to get 
dissatisfied, uncomfortable. Um, sometimes we can, we, we will often put ourselves in the, in the good spot. We, uh, you know, think of ourselves as, as being like the heroes in the story. But I, I think we can relate to perhaps, or at least sympathize with what was going on. Um, have you ever had somebody you grew up with go off and become famous? Um, I had that happen in our, in our suburb growing up. My brother had a friend who um, when and, and this guy was in our suburb. He was over at our house all the time. Uh, he went to the same school as us, so we caught the bus together every single day. I knew him. He was very familiar. And... Um, and in the latter years of high school, he got a job acting on Home and Away. Todd Lassance. <laughs> and, um, and probably a couple of years after school, he wins a Logie. And it was, it was so surreal for me because this guy had been in our house so many times. He was so familiar. And what do we want when the hometown hero returns? Well, if we're a bit egoistic or narcissistic, what we want is we want for them to come back and say, you know what, I could not have done it without you. Like, give the hometown the credit. It's because of you that I am able to do all of this. Um, or, or at the very least, we want them, them to share some of their celebrityness. if I can use that word. We want them to, like, we want to rub some of that good stuff off on us. So come and um, share some of your talent and your skills. Share some of your money. Make some donations to some local clubs or groups. Um, speak in the local high school and, and tell all of our young people how you can, um, you know, work hard, follow your dreams, you can, you can achieve the world and be anything you want to be and, and all of those sorts of motivational stuff. Um, that's, what, that's what people like to happen when the hometown hero returns. That's not what happened here when Jesus returned to his hometown, yeah? Jesus returns to his hometown and he starts talking about the kingdom of God and at first they are amazed. Where did this guy get all of this wisdom and stuff from? But then the confrontation happens. The goodness and glory and, and, you know, magnitude and amazingness of what God wants to do in our midst leaves us falling short. If we go into that space, we would only pollute it. We're not good enough. And so you could imagine what's going on here. He starts to point out what their ways. He starts to say, it's not good enough. Maybe he knows their stubborn sins and he starts pressing his finger on some of those. And what happens? They, first they scoff and then they get offended. Who do you think you are coming back here? We know who you really are. You're just the carpenter. Now, now it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a really bad lawyer move that they make, which is just to completely overlook the message and go after his identity. They didn't say, you know what, I take exception to your interpretation of Israel's scriptures. My, my scholarly friends interpret it this way. They didn't address his message. They went after who he was. And they said, you're just the carpenter. You're just Mary's child. You're like 
You're the same as the brothers. You're of their stuff. You're like them. And they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. And so Jesus responds. And he says this quote. Now, now scholars will tell us he didn't make up the quote. He said a quote that they would understand. A prophet is honoured everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And at one and the same time, Jesus is making a damning pronouncement on them. He's not only describing the human phenomena of taking the familiar for granted or overlooking the familiar voice or familiarity leading to contempt and offence. He was at one at the same time saying, I'm the prophet in this quote. He was declaring himself to be a prophet. And what does a prophet do? Well, a prophet's job, what a prophet would do is they would read the signs of the time. They would interpret the culture. Because what can often happen is the world as we see it can be out of alignment with the world as it really is in terms of what matters. And the prophet would read that. And then he'd also read where things are going. And so we would say to the person who thinks they've got it all together and everything's going good for them and, and they think that God's favour is on them and the prophet would read the situation and maybe see that what's actually happening is that this person is full of pride, full of injustice, they're cheating their way to the top and the path that they are on is going to lead to destruction. And in light of that future consequence the prophet comes back to the present and presents them with a call call to action. If you stay on this road, this is where it's going. Eventually the world will catch up. If you repent, if you change, if you commit yourself back to Yahweh, well then you will reap blessings that are far greater than what you currently have far more important, not necessarily that you'd get more money. A prophet would always read the present, see where things are going, in light of where it's going, come back and present them with a consequence and a call to action, a response. And it was always going to bring them back to maintain faithfulness. For some people, it was an encouragement. You are on the right road, even though the world doesn't look like it. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe things are going badly. But there's a prophet's warning. And this passage here, too, presents a bit of a warning. Not out of Jesus' mouth, but you can see the consequences Because after they got deeply offended with Jesus, the passage says, and because of their unbelief, he he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. That is, God wanted to do so much more among them. But they refused to believe in him. They got offended. And the first, I guess, the first lesson for us here is... um, Don't lose sight of who Jesus really is. Don't let familiarity see you lose sight of who he is, his identity. The second message is that 
if you do lose sight of who he is, it's going to impact what you can receive from him. Now, Pastor Nate mentioned last week that there, there is a difference between the now and the not yet, and, and in the end, God will complete the kingdom of God, but in this now time, there are some things that won't happen, or at least won't happen the way that we want, or won't happen in the timing that we want, but that's not to say that God isn't doing things in the here and now, because he is. And there is a lot that God wants to do for us, but there is a correlation, there is a relationship between your faithful response to God and your ability to, to receive what God wants to do for you now. It was the faith of the woman with the issue of blood that meant that she was able to receive the healing that God had for her. And, and there is almost like a prophet's warning here for us that there's a relationship between how you relationally respond to God and how you are able to receive how he relationally responds to you. I don't think God's holding back. But there is a, re a relationship because it is a relationship. If you reject his person, you are rejecting his work. If you deny his person, you are denying his work. In the end, you can't separate the person from the work. But this message is not about how you receive more stuff or things from Jesus. The primary message is who Jesus is. It's who Jesus is. Because although Jesus declared himself a prophet, he used somebody else's quote, it was not the final word on who he is and he was being humble to use it. Jesus is more than a prophet, far more than a prophet. The day before when Jesus heals the woman and he resurrects Jairus' daughter, um, the woman, I don't know how long she would have been without physical sickness for, but eventually her body would have become frail. Eventually she would have become sick again, maybe from a different thing. And Jairus's daughter, I don't know how long she lived for, five years, 10 years, 15 years, but eventually she too was going to get frail and was going to die. You can't separate the work from the person and the person is the far bigger miracle because the woman with the issue of blood got a first-hand revelation of the magnitude of who Jesus is. Jairus and Jairus's daughter got a first-hand revelation of the person who has all authority over life and death. The person is more important. How do you see Jesus? It's easy to let familiarity seep in. It happens in my life. And I have to remind myself what it was like at the beginning when I didn't take Jesus for granted. When I did appreciate all that He is. 
I didn't overlook his voice. And I didn't perhaps judge him when he didn't meet my expectations. When I chose Jesus the first time, I knew that I could lose friendships and I definitely lost social standing. I gave up things for Jesus. There are people in this world that when they choose Jesus, they give up the world for Jesus because they are seeing something that sometimes we don't see, that He is worth all of it. There is a call to action for us this morning. To humble ourselves, to renew our faith, to ask God to remove the lens or the barriers of familiarity and to reacquaint ourselves with the one who is far greater than a prophet, the one who is worth more than anything in this world. And although He loves us and wants to do great things for us, it is getting the miracle giver through the miracle that actually is more valuable than the miracle itself. Darren spoke about it in the communion message. There is nothing more important than being able to be invited as children of God and to have Jesus as your personal Lord and Saviour. I don't know what your call to action is this morning. I don't know what your response is this morning, but I want to encourage you here this morning. Maybe familiarity has meant you don't worship like you used to. Maybe familiarity has meant you don't pray like you used to. There is a call to action for you this morning. There is an encounter with Jesus for you this morning. Maybe familiarity has meant that you have chased the gifts, you have chased the miracles over the miracle giver. There is a call to action for you this morning. There is an encounter with Jesus for you this morning. Maybe you've been wounded and hurt by Christians or the church in the past. Don't let that in your mind be bigger than Jesus. Don't let it erode how you see Him. It's not worth it. He's bigger than that. And there is an encounter with Jesus for you this morning. Maybe you're in youth, or maybe you're not in youth, but you've watched others have encounters with God and you've wondered, when would it be my turn? There is an encounter with Jesus for you this morning. Nobody has to miss out. Maybe you have been suffering. Maybe you have prayed and prayed and laboured and laboured over that area in your life. And yes, it is difficult. And yes, it's tough, but it's not bigger than Jesus. There is an encounter for you this morning. You pray through that. You worship through that because you already have the biggest miracle that you ever need. We only need to see it.
And as we renew our faith, you watch that thing fade from your view. I don't know if it'll fade from your life right now, but let it fade from your view right now as you gaze on love's face.